You're now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Tommy, and today I have on the three foremost experts I could find on crypto ETFs to chat through everything that's going on related to Bitcoin and Ethereum ETFs, futures ETFs, Grayscale, the whole nine yards. Uh, so let's go in a circle, starting with Scott. Why don't you give us a brief overview about yourself, and then we'll jump around. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, so I'm Scott. Uh, I am a finance lawyer slash trader. I'm at a family office now, but I spent you know, before this many years at a couple of different law firms, most recently uh, Davis Polk, which coincidentally is representing Grayscale in this case. I will point out that I have you know, no inside information with respect to their current uh, posture with respect to the case. Um, everything I say isn't legal advice. That's just my disclaimer. Um, but yeah, and then uh, I think, you know, most recently I've just been focused on on the the case as it relates to the broader uh, ETF landscape. And so happy to be here. Thanks, man. James, what about you? Yeah, so my name is James Seyfert. Um, I am primarily an ETF analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, which is Bloomberg's um, research arm. Um, so I cover the asset management industry for the most part, mutual funds, ETFs. Um, but uh, most recently, I also used to cover commodities. And within that, we started covering cryptos back in 2017. So the whole crypto landscape fell under that uh, umbrella. Ironically, Tom, I actually, when we started, I started with Kevin Kelly, who's one of your guys' co-founders. So he was, when I was learning about ETFs, we were both learning up together. I mean, about cryptos, we were both learning together. So uh, that set up a nice uh, overlap here for me to cover the, the crypto landscape with the ETF landscape. So that's why I've been covering these these grayscale funds for a long time and just all this 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 horse race we have here for um, different crypto ETFs. James, I feel bad for you. Kevin's like seven feet tall. If you sat next and you clearly took up a lot of space, he's a great guy. <laughs> yeah. How let's uh let's hear your background. I think you're you're super well known on Twitter. So I think most people know who you are, but it'd be great to hear a little bit about yourself before we jump in. Sure. Um, <clears throat> my name is Hal Press. Started my career in traditional finance, did five years at Morgan Stanley in a variety of roles um, before eventually going over to the public equity hedge fund space and working at Maverick for a year covering tech out in San Francisco um, and then founded North Rock in November of 21 um, and have been running the fund ever since and just obviously taken a keen interest in the ETF conversation as it relates to the broader market. Nice. That's awesome. I think to set the stage, we should kind of go through the landscape of ETF offerings, just all of the you know filings that are out there, the largest players and kind of where we are. And then we can get into some more pointed questions. Unsure who wants to take the, the landscape one, but let's get into it. Um, yeah, so I can get started on the landscape one. Uh, consider I've been covering this for basically the entire time. I've been covering the, I've been writing research on ETFs. Um, so, I mean, the Winklevoss twins filed for this back in 2013. So that's how long ago this this whole process has started. Um, and to be quite honest, I don't know if any of these other guys will agree with me. A lot of, there, there's been a whole bunch of other filings, 80, 90, 100 different filings. You include Canada, the number goes up. Uh, futures ETFs, spot ETFs, predominantly Bitcoin, but also Ethereum, some index filings. Um, but the current race right now is for spot Bitcoin and for Ethereum futures ETFs. Um, we have about 10 active filings in the spot Bitcoin process. Um, but what I was saying before that I kind of didn't go back to is 
I, for the most part, I actually agreed with the SEC denying some of these applications back in the 2016, 2017 time range. Um, but more and more increasingly, it's become apparent that the SEC's position here for denying these is um, borderline nonsensical, um, especially since they've approved Bitcoin futures ETFs. So we have Bitcoin futures ETFs out there. Um, so now we're trying to figure out when are we going to get a spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, the current applicants, you, you can look at, there's nine that have filed what is called the 19B4, which is basically an application for a rule change. Those are ARC, which is part number 21 shares. You have iShares, which is BlackRock. You have Bitwise. You have VanEck. You have Wisdom Tree. You have Invesco, which is partnered with Galaxy in their application. Then you have Fidelity, Valkyrie, and GlobalX. And then, so those are the, the, the main active ones right now. And then you also have to include Grayscale, which we're, I'm sure we're going to get into. Um, they are um, in a lawsuit with the SEC. We're waiting on the opinion to come down to see um, if they're going to win. And they're trying to convert their Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, GBTC, to an ETF. So there's 10 different people here trying to launch one of these things. And there's a lot of money at stake. There's people, these, these companies are spending a lot of money on lawyers and legal fees and just everything you can think of to try and get these things through the, the SEC's doors. Uh, so that's the spot Bitcoin race. And then more recently, uh, we have the Ethereum futures race, um, which is there are roughly 16 different <laughs> applications to launch these things. They are almost certainly going to launch um, in October. Um, it's a matter of like who's going to go out first, um, how it's going to play out. And we can get into that a bit too. But uh, it's a lot of the same players that I talked about. But these also include Direction, ProShares, Kelly ETFs, Roundhill. Uh, volatility shares, which also launched a 2x Bitcoin futures ETF. So these are big players in the asset management space trying to launch these things, and particularly huge players in the ETF landscape in the US. I think it's just wild that we're almost 10 years into an ETF and we still don't have a spot Bitcoin, spot ETH ETF. I'm not sure who has the best caller here. James, maybe it's you, maybe it's somebody else, but why were you guys, or, or why were you specifically against the SEC approving these earlier on, you know, five, six, seven years ago? So I'll start with like, I'll go quick and, and then we can pass it over to Scott, who I think will probably have more opinions on this. But if you look at the Grace, the, not the Grayscale, the Gemini applications from the Winklevoss, they had a lot of things where they were trying to look at just use the pricing on the Gemini exchange, which is like one exchange. They were also going to be storing it all there. There was a lot of overlapping issues that the SEC was always going to have. Not to mention back in 2016, 2017. Um, there was a lot of issues with people not really understanding what Bitcoin was so that I could I could understand the SEC balking at a lot of those things. But since that time, the the these issuers have like kind of chipped away at every argument the SEC has had aside from um, being a regulated market of significant size, which are the two things that we can get into here in a bit. But um, th there's been plenty of reasons for them not to allow these things in the past. But for the most part, those reasons have kind of like been whittled away over the last decade or so. Um, and I think it's probably just about time that they're they're going to have to seriously consider approving these things. I thought they should have approved them last year. I didn't think they were going to, to be clear. So if anyone was following me on Twitter or any of my research on the terminal, I was saying they weren't going to be approved. Um, this time we're at about 65% odds that we think they'll get approved. It all depends at the end of the day um, what Gary Gensler and the people he reports to want to do. Yeah, yeah, I get, I get that argument. And, and I mean, look, there was... Obviously, always going to be a natural time when these things should be approved, at least with respect to the spot ETFs. Like you were, should never have expected the first one, the Winklevoss ETF, to be approved. And I think as the market gets larger, additional regulated products like futures products come online and become established markets that the arguments against it become less and less. And so I think now we're probably at a natural time where it's, it's time to approve them. And I think to James's point, 
it's from a legal posture standpoint, it's becoming more and more difficult for the SEC to maintain like a logical posture that is one, you know, against the spot ETF, but also consistent with its prior orders and things like two Korean, which was a futures ETF, which was approved, you know, basically immediately before they denied the grayscale application last year. So it's we're kind of in this weird spot where they still have the posture against the spot ETF, but between additional, I mean, look, and on top of all that, you have BlackRock coming in. They've added a little bit of additional uh, protection that might change the calculus a little bit when they have this surveillance sharing agreement with Coinbase that was never, as far as I know, James, you can correct me if I'm wrong, part of any other prior application. Um, so things change, additional protections get added, and so maybe they can pivot. But at least as far as it stands now with Bitcoin, spot ETFs, you know, they still have that the same position until we hear otherwise, although I think everyone is starting to feel like now is the natural time to kind of flip for the SEC if, if they so choose. Yeah. So ironically, th- there was one other that did include a surveillance share agreement and it was the Winklevoss application, but it was only a surveillance oh, share so agreement early. with Gemini. Yeah. So yeah. they were going to In use... 2013 or so? Yeah. No, like, in I... 2017 even. The oh, 20... really? when they were last They were last denied or but that somewhere was before, around there. That was before futures were trading, right? Correct. So... Okay. Yeah. So Gemini, the, their application, they were going to price based off of the Gemini pricing. They were going to use the surveillance sharing agreement on the Gemini platform. Yeah. It was very okay. small for a global Bitcoin trading. Right. So the SEC was never going to allow it. Yeah, that um, makes sense. But and going back to what Scott just said, um, we, we got Bitcoin futures ETFs, ironically enough, because of a speech Gary gave in, on August 3rd in 2021. And he basically said they had been denying any crypto futures ETFs or any crypto ETFs in general for years prior. And he, at the end of one of his speeches, he basically set aside a few paragraphs to say that he looks forward to applications of ETFs under of Bitcoin futures ETFs, CME, Bitcoin futures ETFs, under the 1940 Act. And then the next day, ProShares filed, and that's when we had Bitto, um, which is now the largest, wow. most liquid one. So we can thank uh, Gary for that. And then as <laughs> Scott was talking about, uh, Tucrium was, they had already applied before that, but the 40 Act products go through this different application process, which is what these ETH future CTFs are under, where they, they apply and then there's 75 days until they go effective. So the Tucrium application was a, was filed in July, but the problem is they were under the other process, this, the same process, this 19B4 process that spot products have to go through. And because they were a 33 Act product. So the SEC basically in May of 2022 had to decide if they were going to basically di- dictate that the 1940 Act was different enough to uh, uh, deny um, Bitcoin futures ETFs under that same process they've been denying spot Bitcoin, or just accept that there's no material difference between 33 Act and 40 Act products. And they did that. And so they they used some questionable judgment and reasoning for approving that. So that's one of the things that's hinging on this Grayscale lawsuit and these spot Bitcoin ETFs. So there's, there's a lot here. I have a lot of questions for you guys. You have, <laughs> clearly... I think you guys are waiting for a podcast just to share all this. It's good. We're spewing a lot of good info. Before I get into my specific questions on the SEC st- uh, stance, the current posture, and, and the impact, I want to go to Hal real quick on just the impact of an ETF to set the stage. Like, Hal, you bring fund experience, you bring trader experience, What and, and obviously an approval of a Bitcoin or an ETF would be a monumental event for passive and traditional capital to enter the space. How are you kind of viewing the impact to the market if, you know, what James and Scott are saying is true and eventually we we get one? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends a lot on which product you're talking about. Certainly the 
there's a lot of nuance here and the, the spot ETFs are much more likely to have a large impact than the, than the futures ETFs. I think there's a couple reasons for that. Firstly, the futures ETFs normally suffer from quite a bad role dynamic, which is a product of the fact that they're a futures ETF, meaning that you have to every month roll your future or every quarter, depending on how you do it, um, to the next next future extreme because they're not perpetual futures. They have they do expire, and so you constantly have to roll from one expiry to the next. And there's usually an upward sloping upward sloping contango of term structure in the market, and so you usually pay to do that. And as a result, these ETFs carry quite poorly and end up underperforming the their their spot counterparts. Um, we've seen that with Bido and other sort of futures ETFs, and so that impact really has two creates two issues one you know they're just not as appealing of a product but then two the the pool of money that this is most really relevant for is this um asset management advisor pool which is quite large and those advisors just do not like recommending these futures etfs because they they understand you know the, these dynamics and so they don't get a lot of traction i think we've seen that um in the gold market and some other commodity markets where and, and I think James might have better color on the details here, but um, the the futures ETFs really just never gained good traction. But then as soon as the spot um, ETFs came out, they started to make a bigger footprint in that advisor pool. So um would say that as sort of a, a high level starting point, the spot ETFs are likely to have a much bigger impact than the, than the futures. Now, I think there's a couple other factors at play though. For example, with the ETH futures ETF, the actual approval itself is more significant than just the flows that it will generate because it will also have some signaling impact because it will indicate that once and for all, we can finally put this question to bed as to whether or not the SEC considers ETH a security because if they did, they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to approve this ETF. Um, so, you know, their approval of it is their own tacit acknowledgement that they, they don't they do not think that ETH is a security, which the CFTC has already said, but it would be the first time that the SEC's really, you know, um directly said that. And then second of all, it would then put ETH in play much more directly for a spot ETF, which has never really been considered before because there's a, there's a few moving parts here we can get into the details, but it follows that if you approve an ETH futures and then you approve a Bitcoin spot, you're likely going to approve um, an ETH spot at some point too. And then even more directly, if Grayscale wins the case, which is really arguing that, you know, anytime that you approve a futures ETF, you should also then approve a spot ETF in the in the crypto market, then it would just directly follow that the futures approval um, sort of implicates a spot ETF filing for or approval for ETH, which, you know, in my opinion, you know, the, both of the spot ETFs would be significant because I do think there's an appeal, but like the long-term kind of most, I don't know, or at least a very relevant potential product on the line is a spot ETF that actually stakes the ETH, which I know is something that they're doing in Canada that would offer sort of dividends and yield back to investors. I think that's something that people would find very attractive. So anything that gets you closer to that eventual end goal of like a staked spot ETF for ETH specifically, I think is quite relevant. So you know, I, I, James probably also has a view on this, but I would guess that there's probably low single hundred million dollar impact in terms of flows on the ETH ETF, um, which frankly, in 
today's market is not negligible. Um, it is actually a relevant amount of flow, but probably the larger impact of the ETH futures comes from the signaling. And then I think also there's a signaling impact on the spot side as well. Um, when you have players like BlackRock and Fidelity backing these ETFs, I think it does um, do something to the perception of to the broader market towards Bitcoin. And I also think, you know, if these Bitcoin spot ETFs are approved, there is going to be a race um, for people to try to gain market share. And everyone's going to be racing to try to be the dominant player. And the natural follow on of that is that everyone is going to be marketing their product very heavily. So, you know, if these spot ETFs are approved, all of the largest asset managers and ETF filers in the world are going to be basically promoting Bitcoin to the general public, which, you know, could we would very likely have, have an impact on the market as well. I think that's, I really like your take how on the signaling and the marketing aspect outside of just the pure flows. You, you mentioned earlier that the futures product has this rebalancing. It's also leveraged. Why would the SEC approve a futures product that's arguably not as good as just holding spot for the average investor? Like that's just very confusing to me. Like why would they do that? Why would they do that? I mean, Scott can definitely answer that one. I mean, I'm happy to take it because I've been researching this, but, but you go ahead, Scott. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think we all probably have an opinion. I think ultimately when you're talking about regulated products, um, regulated futures products, they, they ultimately, the SEC is kind of forced to treat them similarly, right? So it's not talking about spot. These are futures contracts that are trading on CFTC regulated exchanges, and there are leveraged uh, products for other commodities and other um derivative contracts that trade. And so, you know, making a distinction between those derivative contracts and these derivative contracts is a tougher thing than say, you know, a futures contract ETF versus a spot ETF. And so, you know, it's, it's not a fight that it seems like the SEC wanted to have, I guess. Yeah. I'll jump in here. I, I've said this for a while that like, basically my view is the SEC had like when they did this and when they denied spot after approving futures, they kind of lost the forest for the trees. I mean, anyone with, with layman understanding of how the markets work and looking at futures know that futures are going to be getting their cues from the spot market. And if you look at the pricing of these Bitcoin futures products and the Bitcoin futures on the CME, they're based off of something called the Bitcoin reference rate, which is based off of five or six spot Bitcoin exchanges. So, I mean, at the end of the day, you're saying you can't have spot, but they're allowing these derivatives, which are more complex. All the issues that Hal talked about with the rolling costs, um, it, it generally like it just doesn't make sense to most people. And if you listen to the oral arguments from um, the SEC versus Grayscale case, you kind of got that the judges also saw that like the SEC was like stuck and legally stuck and like looking at the, like I said, losing the force for the trees here um, and just I mean, allowing Grayscale to operate as it has at such a huge discount, allowing it to operate at such a huge premium while also not allowing spot Bitcoin ETFs. But the SEC, in multiple instances, addressed those concerns you just had, Tom. Like they, the, in the denial letters, they basically said, that's not what we're looking at. The division of trading markets is only worried about manipulation of the underlying spot markets and the ETFs themselves. I like James's point, though. I mean, look, there's like legal technical postures and and working that angle. And then there's like the layman understanding of, of the practical effects of those postures. And it really seems quite silly in a lot of ways how their legal posture ends up in these kind of ridiculous positions where, you know, you have leveraged futures ETFs trading ahead of spot. You have, you know, these trusts that would like to move to a, an ETF model with, you know, creation redemption mechanics 
that would bring into line what is essentially a massive discount on, you know, multi tens of billion dollar trust assets. And the SEC is blocking that. And they're making somewhat fanciful arguments about how, you know, futures and spot markets might not be so related or, you know, we need to figure out a lead lag on one of the others. And so it's it's it, I think when you look at it from the layman perspective, it just looks silly. Right. And and we can get into the legal arguments and get into the grayscale case in greater detail. But I, I like James point on that, which is ultimately like you lose a lot of credibility, even if you have a sound legal argument, if the practical layman effects and what people see looks ridiculous, you lose a lot of credibility as a regulator. Yeah. And the other thing that, that, that was a good point that Hal made was he was talking about the, the issues with futures ETFs, right? One, I do agree. We think it's going to be single digit hundreds of millions that go into those futures products potentially. Uh, that's our best guess. We don't think it's going to be as big as the, the Bitcoin futures products that launched. Um, the other thing is I see a lot of people talking about how bad the roll costs on these things are. I've seen people quoting 25, 30%. Um, that is not the case. As Hal mentioned, you have to sell the current month futures contract and buy the next month futures contract. Bitto is underperforming spot by about five and a half percent, not 30%, but because it distributes dividends, a lot of people seem to be looking only at the price return of these ETFs, which is just the price of the ETF rather than incorporating the dividends and reinvestment. So it's not 30%, it's 5.7%, but that's still a lot. That's year to date. It's only been eight months. Um, so it, it's a meaningful underperformance here. The other thing is we, we talked about you kind of mentioned each ETF like chooses when to roll slightly differently. They might have a different makeup. Some might hold a little bit of the second month or another month contract, not just the front month contract. So the difference in return year date is by is, is about three percent from one Bitcoin ETF to the to to another ETF. So um, there's a whole bunch of different issues here that come up with with futures ETFs that make them less efficient. But as Hal said, when gold spot gold ETFs they absolutely dwarf the futures market, uh, the futures gold market uh, for ETFs. Uh, they do still exist. They were around first, but they are they only have like a couple hundred million and they've been around since the the early two thousands. How how soon did they dwarf that market? Like how first day. Yeah. So GLD was the the fastest ETF to a billion dollars in in basically one day. It did it in two thousand three or two thousand four. Uh Bitto was the first one to pass that. Uh they did it in two days. Uh but obviously the dollar amounts aren't exactly equal when you sure. go from two thousand three to, to twenty twenty one, but still James, but it's a big deal. James, did GLD have any issues posting, like or or getting approval back then? It was a long process, but they didn't go through the same sort of rigor morale and super detailed analysis. I obviously, I was in, uh, I don't even think I was in middle school when they approved that thing, but it was a long process. It was a long process, but they didn't go into as much detail about the regulated underlying markets as they are at this point. So this is like the the SEC is. Yeah, that's something that's changed recently. Yeah, with the significant markets test. Interestingly, with GLD, I know that they did not have a surveillance sharing agreement with any sort of spot market at that time. They just had it with the CME, which is what Grayscale is trying to argue here. So in that sense, it's very similar. And and the SEC is taking a bit of a different tack now. Granted, the gold futures market and the gold market in general has been around a lot longer. But regardless, at least with respect to that fact, it's similar. Yeah, the, the SEC is, has continually moved goalposts here. Um, and they, I, I, you talk to somebody at the SEC, they, they mostly would agree with you that they have been moving the goalposts. What, what I'm going to go back to repeatedly probably in this conversation is it's become this decision has become extremely political. So basically one of the reasons why we are getting more and more positive on approvals because denial is becoming politically untenable, essentially. Um, it's making Gensler look bad. Um, and the SEC kind of looked bad. They just lost some, they partly lost some of their case to Ripple. Um, 
they just lost a case in um, to, in the same court case, which we can get into over Spike's Futures products, which is somewhat related. Um, so for all these reasons, like, and also if you think about it, if the SEC, now that BlackRock came in with that surveillance sharing agreement we talked about, Gensler can kind of spin this as like, look, I've got, I tamed the wild west. I got, I got the, the crypto markets to enter into a surveillance sharing agreements with NASDAQ and BlackRock and, and the adults in the room are now here because of something that I did. So it's very easy to spin that. And the other thing it does, even if they lose to Grayscale in this court case, they can say, well, we we're going to approve them now because BlackRock figured out how to get the SSA and the reasons that we lost this court case is irrelevant. So then he also like diminishes losing a court case, a potential court case to Grayscale um, by going and approving these things at that time too. One follow-up question. Why do you guys think there is a change in the political posture by potentially changed by Gary Gensler? Like, is it that BlackRock is moving in? Is it losing court cases? Like, why can't they just continue on this path of, you know, denial, lack of information and sort of vagueness? Like what, what is actually changing there? Yeah. I mean, I, I think grayscale is important for the, a lot of reasons that James said, which is one, it's, if they if they lose, I mean, look, Grayscale. We can get into the details, but it's interesting the fact that I think even if Grayscale wins, in theory, the SEC could continue denying if they wanted. To. If they were so intense on denying the spot ETF, there's really no scenario where Grayscale comes out of that court case and they are automatically 100 percent in a situation where they're going to get approved. So it's. It would be embarrassing for them. It actually would reduce their ability and maneuverability to maybe potentially deny future ETFs like an ETH spot ETF, depending on how that court case rules. Just to set the stage, so Grayscale runs $10 billion in trusts, which are publicly traded you know, tickers that people can buy in their brokerage accounts, which own underlying Bitcoin and Ethereum and things like that. They trade at significant discounts to their, their NAV price, so significant discounts to the amount a value of the tokens in there, and they're trying to convert to be ETFs. And, and kind of what you're saying, you're getting into the case right now of, of Grayscale kind of suing the SEC to, to allow that, right? Yeah. I mean, would, would it be helpful to just give like the high level overview of that? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Please do. Okay. So, so if you start back from like the beginning, I mean, federal agencies get granting authority through specific statutes. So, like the SEC gets authority from like 33 Act, 34 Act. The CFTC gets it from like Commodity Exchange Act. And that was like the authority that gives them what powers they have. And then on top of that, there's something called Administrative Procedure Act, which is basically like a meta statute over all federal agencies in terms of how they can exercise the power that's granted to them and these other statutes. And more or less, it basically is like, okay, when you're exercising authority, you know, you 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 have to have you know reasoned analysis in terms of when you're making decisions or orders um it can't be arbitrary capricious and abuse of discretion things like that it basically has to be you know fair and and one of the things that's part of like fairness is you have to treat like things similarly like you can't have one person come in with some product approve them and then some person the next week come in with essentially the same product and disapprove them now I'm not going to suggest that spot and futures ETFs are the same product, but to go a little bit further, when you say something specifically, a, a conclusion that you draw or a reason that you have to approve a futures product, you can't then change that reason at a later point. So what what we've mentioned before is, um, and James mentioned, under what is essentially the 33 Act, 
this issuer, Tucreum, had filed for a futures ETF um, and got approved before Grayscale got denied in 2022. And part of that process was uh, an approval order that the SEC had to give, basically a reasoned analysis in terms of why they were approving this. And that that part of that process and the reasoning that they gave in approving Tucreum and I think it was Valkyrie was the other one at the time, kind of locked them into a certain argument in terms of why why they were doing what they were doing to approve them. And one of the important parts of the argument, and and that's required by the Exchange Act, which is, you know, the rules that the exchange that's listing the product has to basically be designed, quote unquote, to prevent fraudulent and manipulative acts and practices. Right. And so when they talk about that and they they really start to think about, okay, well, what does that ultimately mean? And so the SEC has to take a position on what that means. And and at least with respect to Bitcoin products, they've really focused on surveillance sharing agreements and, and this thing called the significant markets test. And they really laid out in terms of that application with Tucreum, you know, how they viewed it with respect to the futures product, what it means to have a surveillance sharing agreement with a regulated market of significant size and how that surveillance sharing agreement could detect fraud and manipulation in both the futures market and other markets. And so they kind of locked in an argument there. And then a couple months later, they deny Grayscale's application to convert their trust. And they made arguments that were opposite, at least with some respect, to what they gave in Tucreum. And so that's ultimately the the big thing. And, and so the 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 difference basically there's a few arguments that grayscale makes but to not to get too deep into the weeds the big argument that at least gets focused on in oral argument that the judges were focused most on which is basically okay in tucreum you said the sec said that the surveillance sharing agreement between the new york stock exchange and the cme is reasonably likely to detect fraud and manipulation that would occur on the futures CME market or other markets outside of the CME. And so that implies that it should be able to detect fraud and manipulation in the spot markets. Now they get into it a little bit more, but when Grayscale comes around a couple months later, they basically say the opposite, which is that, well, we it's not actually able to detect fraud and manipulation on these other markets with respect to the actual spot market. So it can only be really detected with respect to the futures market because we reasonably likely that whoever's manipulating would have to trade on the futures market. And so this surveillance sharing agreement, which I don't think is consistent with actually the two the, the two orders between two crew and grayscale. But that's that's the biggest issue I, I think in this case. Like I said, Grayscale makes other arguments um, during the, the course of this, this case, but ultimately that's what it's going to turn on, I think. Um, and so that's, I think ultimately where we're at, at least with respect to the arguments. And then we can talk about how it ultimately gets resolved. Um, if anyone else wants to jump in. Yeah. So I would, two things I would add, 
um, that Tucrium filing actually became, they partnered with Hashdex to launch what is now the ticker DeFi. So it's the only 33 act futures ETFs. So they're the ones, they don't pay at a dividend because they issue a K1 and they're technically structured as a partnership. But we don't need to get the details there. But one of my pet theories is they could be one of the first ones to hold spot Bitcoin because they're the only currently active Bitcoin ETF on the market that's structured as a 33 act. So if they can get approval from the SEC for changes to the way that fund is structured, they could theoretically um, change to then hold Bitcoin at some point down the line. Um, the other thing that what Scott was talking about in the approval letter for Tukram, and he was right, it was Valkyrie. They were the other 33 act product, which Valkyrie never launched that approval after that approval. Um, they spent a lot of time. Like it was like, we're approving this for all these reasons, the reasons that Scott just talked about. And then they spent, they, there was every time there was like an ex explanation why they weren't going to approve spot. And it was like, if you read that an approval letter for Tucrium and for Valkyrie, like, and you still thought they were going to approve Grayscale, like, I don't know, I had a, <laughs> I, I, I had something I wanted to sell you. Like, it just wasn't going to happen. The SEC hadn't made up their mind. And it goes back to what I was saying before. Um, th it comes down to what the SEC wants to do. They'll back into legally whatever they decide they, they need to do uh, politically. Um, so, so you... Yeah, go ahead. James and Scott, just to, just to make sure I'm following correctly, don't shoot me if I'm, I'm missing anything. You guys are the experts here. So basically, Tucrium had these ETFs that were approved by the SEC for non-crypto use cases. And, uh, and basically, they were approved because they argued that they were able to detect fraud and manipulation using some type of agreement with an exchange. And basically, on the Grayscale filing, they also have this agreement with Coinbase to solve this issue, but they were denied, which is... Is, is that my following this correctly? Yeah. So it's the they two career file for the Bitcoin futures ETF. Um, so they were approved because basically, if you think of this, there's some there's some semblance of understanding to why this would make sense, right? They're saying we have surveillance sharing agreement because the CME is a, re a federally regulated market by the CFTC. Um, so denying them kind of could put them in a pitted battle, like the SEC versus the CFTC. But their argument was, we can see any manipulation because the CME market is regulated and we know there's surveillance sharing agreements there, right? So we know exactly what's going to happen. Their argument for spot is that we don't have anything for the spot markets. But realistically, if the spot markets are manipulated, then thus the CME markets are manipulated because those markets are completely intertwined. So anyone who understands this just doesn't, you can't like, you can't say that you're manipulating spot and then not affecting futures in some way. And also all these spot Bitcoin applications that when they talk about how they're going to price the ETF, it's not, we're going to trust this one exchange that could be subject to manipulation. Almost all of them have some sort of composite pricing level, similar to the way that Bitcoin futures are, are priced. So there's a whole bunch of different arguments for why this, the SEC's argument does make sense, but it really came down to, we have a surveillance sharing agreement with the CME. It's a federally regulated market. And we, we Scott talked about the significant market test. The reason they approved, so with the, the way they got around, so basically the argument would be, well, CME futures market isn't a market of significant size for Bitcoin. And if you read the letter, and I quote, they literally say it's a, it's a regulated market of significant size with respect to itself. CME futures, Bitcoin futures are a market, a regulated market of significant <laughs> size with relation to itself. Um, yeah. So that's and, how they basically approve those things. And James, I, I would actually go a little bit further. I, I, I think that they go beyond just that the surveillance, and I think this is actually really key. I think they go beyond the fact that the surveillance sharing agreement picks up fraud and manipulation that occurs on the futures exchange. Maybe that's not what you were saying, but they specifically say, you know, the surveillance, and I'm quoting, can reasonably relied upon to capture the effects of a person attempting to manipulate a CME Bitcoin futures ETB by manipulating the price of CME Bitcoin futures contracts whether by directly trading on the CME or by trading outside of the CME Bitcoin futures market. And I think that's 
really key because if they're saying in that order, part of their reasoning is that this surveillance sharing agreement can detect fraud manipulation outside that market, which presumably includes spot markets, then a spot market should be able to rely upon that same reasoning. And I, and I think that's really the crux of Crayscale's argument, which is, hey, you said you can detect it for two Krium. We're, we're, yeah, we're not on the futures, but if you're trying to detect fraud in the spot market and you're saying that regardless, this surveillance sharing agreement can detect it on the spot market, then we should be able to rely upon that same reasoning. So I would say the the one the one counter that the SEC tries to use. Can you guys hear me clearly? Yeah, you're all good out. Thanks. Um, the the one the one counter that the SEC tries to to use, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, Scott, mm-hmm. is they basically try to say the surveillance sharing agreement will be able to pick up on fraud and manipulation in the spot market if it is intended to manipulate the futures price. They try to add that caveat to protect themselves going right. forward. Now, so then their argument is, okay, that's true, but if the fraud and manipulation in the spot market is intended to manipulate the spot price, then we cannot be reasonably sure that the surveillance in the futures market will pick up on it because their view is that if it's intended to manipulate the futures market, then the manipulator is, quote, reasonably likely to trade in the futures market. But if it's not, that they're not sure that that's the case. And that's the mechanism by which they're planning to pick it up. So in my opinion, it hinges on this. That question is, does that make any sense? And personally, to me, it doesn't it doesn't actually follow logically that someone trying to manipulate the futures market would actually need to trade in the futures market. The SEC is acknowledged, and I mean, it's obviously anyone that's like knows these markets. The markets follow each other, so a manipulator could manipulate the futures market purely by trading in the spot market. There's no reason that they have to go and trade in the futures market to manipulate the futures market, and that's really the the key issue. Um, I think that's what it's going to hinge on. Not to interrupt you, but from the the grayscale oral arguments, there's a line. I forgot which lawyer it's from, but I think it's for um, from the SEC, and basically the line is. It's undisputed that the spot markets in which the assets underlying petitioner's products trade are fragmented and unregulated in contrast to the situation of the approved futures products that only trade on the CME. I, I don't I think we're talking about the same line here, but it makes no sense to me that you have more fractured spot markets than you do on a limited CME market. I'm not sure exactly what that line is referring to. I think it may just be that um, you know, they're, 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 the OCC is saying that those spot markets are, you know, not uniform and, and are not regulated, and so that's why they're a little bit skeptical of them. Um, but I think Scott had some good sort of context on this, and James probably does too. Um, you know, this is not the first market to have this issue of spot and futures ETFs, and you know where, how this surveillance kind of goes between them. The, the, this, this issue has come up in, in countless other commodities, and the SEC's stance historically has been that you know surveillance within the futures market is actually sufficient to catch fraud and manipulation in the spot market and that that's a, that's therefore um, adequate to approve spot ETFs now what SEC says in this case is basically that yes that's true but these other markets where we've used that logic are much older <laughs> um, you know they've been around for 60 years or 70 years and, and so they're different now, Again, 
I think, you know, if the judges are going to take issue, it's with things like that. Like, so why does it matter if a market is 60 years old or 10 years old as to whether or not the futures market can catch fraud and manipulation in the spot market? It's not logical to me, you know, that that that, that relationship between that excessive an age versus 10, just 10 years, like 10 years is obviously still plenty long. And, and, the, and the, um, the two markets, you know, are both significant in all these different cases. So I think that, that's another sort of inconsistency where, you know, if the judges are going to take issue, um, that, that's probably one of the places that they do it. So let's just zoom out for a minute. We're, we're, we're debating or, or talking about inconsistencies in the SEC's viewpoint on past approvals and now with crypto ETFs. Let's walk through the scenario of, you know, Grayscale wins against the SEC. Um, what, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean they're able to convert tomorrow? Does that mean they have to go back? Like, what are the next steps there? Yes, I can take that. Um, all right. So Grayscale is, you know, basically requested the D.C. Circuit to vacate the order that essentially denied their application. So to vacate would just mean, you know, you're setting it aside and Essentially, you'd have to, the court would then send it back, the decision back to the SEC to make a new ruling that would be consistent with the decision that the court came down with. So it's highly dependent or entirely dependent, actually, in terms of where and how and, and how expansively the court kind of knocks down the logic uh, that the SEC has pri- previously provided with respect to the, the grayscale orders. Um, so that is really hard to predict in terms of the, the scope of what they reject in terms of the logic of the SEC. Um, I think looking to the oral argument, you get a sense that they're they're really focused on the application of the significant markets test and and the illogical inconsistencies that seem to pop up with respect to how they're treating spot and futures and how you can detect on one and not the other and how you've made arguments in the past that seem to indicate the opposite of what you're saying now. And so, you know, like I said before, I don't think there's any scenario where the court comes back and says and rejects an argument of the SEC to such an extent that they're forced to approve a spot ETF. But I do think the extent and the tone that they reject the SEC's arguments um, will play a large part in terms of how the SEC responds with respect to grayscale conversion and with respect to these other outstanding ETF applications. That's awesome. I, I guess my follow-up question, though, is like, regardless of how firm the judge is, the SEC can just forever deny grayscale, right? Like, is there any other route? Like, yeah. If they really want to, I mean, look, they. It, it, I don't see any likely scenario where they don't have that option. I mean, look, it's a credibility argument and you really look silly. I mean, but you can really try to distinguish another way. I mean, look, they, they'll come back and they have an opportunity to try to come up with another way to distinguish. Um, I mean, another way that potentially the SEC could respond is taking um, away the approvals of the futures products. I find that extremely unlikely. James might have a different view on that, but that just seems like very unlikely. Um, but, you know, it, in reality, if they say, listen, we're knocking away this argument, this isn't going to work. The SEC could come back with just a different way to distinguish. And then we're back to square one where Grayscale has the option to try to appeal again. And, you know, it's a bit of a whack-a-mole. But, I mean, it's a credibility, I think, argument on the SEC where 
from a layman's perspective, they look bad if they lose, no matter what. Um, if it's really extensive, it looks worse. And if they come back and try to find a different way to distinguish that is also silly, in a lot of people's views, it looks like, you know, this is just an out-of-control regulator at some point. So, you know, I think that's really what you want to see is is to the extent and the tone that the D.C. circuit kind of knocks them down if they choose to do so. Yeah, um, I would I would say like this kind of goes back to like you asked, why is this happening now? Like what's going on? Why are things changing? So one, as Scott was just saying, it almost comes politically untenable for for uh, Gensler at some point, right? If he keeps denying for these reasons and everyone keeps thinking they're silly, it, it really does not look good for him for the most part. Um, the other part of this is our, our base case before BlackRock filed for the SSA, before some of these other things happened, we, we wrote this in March, the day after the oral arguments was our base case was that Grayscale was going to win. We gave 70% chance likely they were going to win. But our base case was that the SEC was going to deny Grayscale again for another reason. So the court in this case, like Scott said, would vacate the decision. And then the SEC would come back and just say, oh, we're, we're denying for some other reason. My, my pet theory was that they would deny on some sort of qualified custodian rules. The SEC has been doing a lot of work with custodian rules and changing what is a qualified custodian. Right now, there technically is no federally um, regulated qualified custodians for Bitcoin. And I assume the SEC was going to lean on something like that, potentially. Who knows? Um, but it really comes down to the fact that there's like the SEC is being hit from three different angles here, right? So the first angle is obviously Grayscale. That's the hardest one. Um, then you have BlackRock jumping into the space with the Coinbase SSA. Um, so they have the surveillance sharing agreement with Coinbase. And then you also have this, the, the one that I think most people don't realize is you have these other issuers, namely volatility shares um, coming into this and looking like they they must have seemed ready to basically go to the mat with the SEC. So they launched the 2X Bitcoin futures product and one of our, uh, that also made some waves, but they had just denied some 2X Bitcoin futures products in June. And volatility shares basically, we're not really sure how they launched, but my guess is that um, the SEC... So in the 19 before applications, the SEC has to issue a response and has to issue approval or denial. This other process I talked about, the 75 days, a lot of it is like back channeling. Like the SEC will be like, we're not ready for that yet. Can you withdraw? And these issuers will, will withdraw. So that happened with the leveraged Bitcoin futures products recently. It happened with Ethereum products just in May for Ethereum futures products. But volatility shares somehow just launched this thing. So my our guess and our understanding is that they basically went to the SEC. The SEC probably told them they wanted them to withdraw. And the SEC basically said, give us give us an official order to withdraw and we will and basically if the sec does that and the official order isn't up to legal reasoning all of a sudden the volatility shares it's going to threaten to go to court the way grayscale yeah, that's has appeal, that's an appealable lawsuit. action right exactly. exactly i mean that's something that's appealable but you know going behind the scenes saying can you withdraw this is something that is obviously not appealable because they just do it on their own voluntary basis Exactly. And then volatility shares filed. So they had got that Bitcoin futures ETFs out and they're the ones that kicked off this Ethereum race. And I suspect they were doing the same thing with Ethereum futures saying, issue us an order to tell us a withdrawal. And then that's when the SEC went out to all these other people that had applied in the past and said, all right, we're open to reviewing these now. Because in my opinion, even if Grayscale loses, which I don't think they will, the argument for ETH futures while Bitcoin futures exist is even stronger than the argument for spot Bitcoin, because it's already a federally regulated um, uh exchange for for ethereum futures they're both traded on cme there's all these arguments are even stronger for ethereum futures etfs and i think that that all these different angles have basically caused the sec to almost sort of like basically put bitcoin and ethereum in this one different bucket and then everything else is in a completely separate bucket that they're still going after pretty hard because just fighting on the ethereum and bitcoin side of things is probably too much for them 
Yeah. And just to touch back on the earlier side about like why this has become political, I think there's like, you know, I don't know any of the specifics, but you just get the sense from following it and seeing how some of the events are unfolding. You know, there is some push from some of these larger institutions to not be necessarily so hostile to crypto and just be purely, purely negative. And they, they do want the U.S. to play some role um, in, in this field, I think. And that's kind of pushed back. And so I think the administration's response to that has been, okay, we will, you know, try to really clamp down on some of these bad actors that we feel, you know, are, are creating the issues, but then try to let some of these larger institutions come in and, and, and then allow us to participate in this space, but from a more professional standpoint. And so I think that's part that, that general sort of approach is part of the reason why there's been a little bit of a political turning of the winds. It's all helpful, guys. So I'd like to talk timelines a little bit. So if Grayscale wins against the SEC, you know, just playing devil's advocate here, and as a disclosure, I own some ETE, which is their peering product. What is the timeline on, uh, what are the timelines here? So like if they win, I guess, timeline to approval or not approval, and then potential new lawsuit or something, like what are we looking at here? Yeah, so James can talk about the outstanding applications, but at least with respect to Grayscale, I mean, look, I can't see it. They'll send it back to the SEC, and then the SEC will have to make a decision. My guess is that they give them some sort of deadline. I mean, it's I can't imagine a scenario that goes beyond the the typical ETF sort of process timeline, which is what, like 240, 260 days, James? And so, I mean, look, that's unlikely even in my view i mean it's probably something more like i don't know 60 90 145 days something like that i mean i can't imagine why they would send it back and say okay you can start all over again and reconsider it with the full amount of time just seems unlikely um the i think one good example i think was um so this the dc circuit um basically had rejected another order of the sec just at the end of last month um it was like an exemptive order of securities futures or um they vacated it, but they basically gave them like 90 days or so to, to have a redo. Um, so, I mean, that's probably a good baseline of where you might expect them to to kind of give, give guidance. Nice. One thing I wanted to ask you guys is you mentioned that the judges in the Grayscale case, um, they ruled on something against the SEC recently, where I think it was argued that they were like capricious or something. And I don't think that was a crypto event, but it's the same judges on Grayscale. Can you guys give some context to who the judges are ruling on this case and maybe some of their password? With with respect to Grayscale, there's three judge, a three-judge panel at the DC Circuit. So you have Naomi Rao, which is, uh, she is Republican-nominated, Trump-nominated uh, judge. She's Federalist Society judge. She's like, big time, small government type judge speaks at the Heritage Foundation. I think everyone expects her to rule in favor of Grayscale. Um, and then you have Sri Srinivasan, who's chief judge at DC Circuit, nominated by Obama. He is, I, in my view, he's a very fair guy. I think he's, he in, in terms of like scope of agency power, he would probably lean more towards agencies, but like the actual exercise of that power, I think he's a very much more like moderate guy and he gets upset if you're not very consistent in your logical arguments. Like you might say the agencies have a lot of power, but they have to use it logically. 
is probably the best way that I would describe him. And so at least at oral arguments, it seemed like he was pretty skeptical. I'm, I feel good about, you know, him possibly ruling in the side of grayscale. And then you have judge Edwards, who is another Obama nominated judge. Uh, he's probably the most liberal of the three. Uh, he's probably the most likely to rule in favor of the sec. And at least with respect to the other case that you were mentioning, that was another, um, discretionary order that the sec had given on these security futures. And the, these two of the judges, Naomi Rao and Sri Srinivasan was on that case. And they gave a decision that, um, basically rejected the order, vacated it, sent it back to the SEC, which is important, I think, because it kind of confirms my view with the Chief Judge Three, which is he's kind of a stickler in terms of following the process. And he doesn't like if you're kind of being a little illogical and inconsistent and not really following the process that you should, despite the, the using the authority that you have. Um, so that I found that to be, you know, um, something that was a good sign at least. Yeah. I would also add that I, I our base case was that it, the, the grayscale would probably lose two one because of the row situation. Um, but Edwards, even in the or arguments seemed to even very responsive to the grayscale things. Like it could very well be a three zero decision. Um, I wouldn't say that's almost certainly going to be, but it very well could be based on the questions that he was asking. Um, and then regarding what Scott said, I also don't think I've seen people on Twitter saying it's going to be another 240 days. That is, I don't think that's going to be the case. They are not going to go have to go through the entire process again. They're just going to have to. My guess is maybe like so the last day the when you do this 19 before process, 240 days is the number, right? And it goes 45, 45, 60, 90 is the is the gap or 90, 60, 60, 90. So I'm guessing that the last gap, I, I have a feeling that's what they're going to go back to, which would be the 90 days potentially. Um, so that's what the timeline looks. I agree with everything Scott said completely. Uh, but the other side of this is, so there's two dates to be watching here, right? You asked about timelines. Um, the two dates are some time period after this decision comes down, which could come down in any time in the next couple of weeks, potentially. And then my guessing is somewhere 45 to 90 days from there. We need to see the opinion to know what it's going to say, um, as Scott has said multiple times. But some timeline, 45 to 90 days from when that decision drops is when we could see some sort of decision on the grayscale application or the grayscale lawsuit. Um, and then I would assume our, our base case is the SEC is going to do something with all of them at once potentially. Um, but assuming that doesn't happen or there's way longer of a delay, the next deadline that they cannot pass is January 10th of 2024, which is the ARC and 21 shares filing. So by that date, we are going to know what's going to happen essentially. So by late December, early January, we should know what the SEC is thinking here because all these other applications I mentioned, there was nine, uh, nine, nine other ones or eight other ones aside from ARK and 21 shares. They're all due in March because they all filed right in June, right when BlackRock did. Um, so they're not due for final decision in March. So it'd be very strange, <laughs> abnormal, even if the SEC denies these things in January and then two months later just approves all of them in March. So basically, if we get to January 10th and none of these are approved, there's probably none of them getting approved in this wave. Makes sense. So just to sum up our conversation, so, and let me know if I'm off here. So you guys are pretty, you guys are leaning that Grayscale will likely win their argument against the SEC, but this doesn't approve a transfer or a conversion directly to an ETF. And you guys think there is a good chance they could get denied for other reasons. But I think ultimately you guys feel that both economically and politically an ETF via one of these parties is an inevitability. And then that kind of lead to a slew of other ETFs being being adopted. Yeah, and I just I would just comment on the grayscale point. I think the the point there is that 
It doesn't necessitate immediate approval, but certainly if Grayscale wins, it makes it even harder for the SEC to not approve. It puts a lot more pressure on them. So I think it definitely increases the odds. But I think the point Scott was trying to make is just that it doesn't like it doesn't force their hand a hundred percent. But I think for all intents and purposes, it likely does indicate um, ETF will be approved. But otherwise, yeah, I would agree with with, the, with how you phrased it. Do you guys have any opinions on on just why it's been so combative? Like, wouldn't like the U.S. is like one of the epicenters of technological innovation, capital formation, inclusion, like? Why shouldn't we allow people around the world to be able to access Bitcoin and ETH natively? So, like, it I'll, makes, I'll take it I'll take this one. I'll be the negative one on a crypto podcast. I mean, let's be <laughs> honest here. Um, this industry has been rife with fraud and manipulation left and right, and people and regulators are not going to like that, no matter how you slice it. Um, so part of it is on the industry itself to clean itself up. Um, but again, I've been very critical of the SEC here, but like. Just James, can you take level. that a step further? Like, what? Like, if you're sitting in the SEC to play devil's advocate, like, and you're looking at ways that an ETF or the underlying asset could be manipulated, like, I'd look at the largest players or largest holders, like, I don't know, maybe the Binance of the world. Like, like, what would you? Yeah, are there like edge what, cases here where, yeah, it can be manipulated, and you're worried. I mean, tinfoil hat here. Like, obviously, it the SEC would be doing what they're doing. Right. I mean, they, they're going after Coinbase and Binance. The Coinbase lawsuit doesn't mention anything about Bitcoin or Ethereum. They go after specific tokens, which falls in line with like my other theory I was talking about. And also their lawsuit isn't accusing them of fraud or manipulation or other any of these other practices. They're basically saying you're an unlicensed broker for, for, for a layman. What they're going after Binance for is very, very different. They're basically accusing them of things that FTX did. They're accusing them of commingling accounts. They are saying they're using manipulative practices, spoofing their trading volume. Like they are going after them for a lot of bad things. So um, again, tinfoil hat on, it's like they're kind of going after everyone, the big players, but they're kind of pushing people towards Coinbase in a way. Um, Binance is obviously having their issues right now. So a part of that is due to the DOJ and the SEC going after or potentially going after um, Binance and CZ right now. So if that's where all the bad action acting is happening, um, it's obvious right now, if you talk to anyone who trades in this space, and I've talked to plenty, I'm sure Hal can comment on this, like that's where all the liquidity is. It's on Binance for the most part. Um, ironically, it'd probably be what the SEC is doing. They're going after bad actors. Honestly, there's been a few other bad actors they've gone after. They're going after, <laughs> um, uh, what's his name, Richard Hart for for hex coins and all these things. There's been a plenty of coins that everyone has been calling out for frauds and scams all over crypto Twitter, anywhere, you name it. And the SEC was going after like Kim Kardashian and like all these other things for pumping these random coin, moon coin and these things and not going after the big players. They seem to be kind of like going after the real frauds in the space for once. Um, and we'll see how it all plays out. But it's almost like if you get an ETF, one, you're pushing people to be using Coinbase because that's where the SSA is. That's where the US dollars are trading. You're basically legitimizing Coinbase's practice. So a lot of institutions, specifically U.S. institutions, are going to be willing to go to Coinbase to do this trading volume. So in a way, the SEC is almost like picking a winner here, um, theoretically, or trying to pick a winner and push things towards towards one area, which, again, kind of goes against the ethos of, of crypto in general. But that's that's kind of the way I'm viewing it. I like the devil's advocate view. Um, Al, I think like closing conversations should center around how you're playing all of these events, given your you know, extremely active trader, extremely active fund. Like, how are you positioning for or not? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've commented on this on Twitter, so this isn't new, but 
I think as it stands right now, there's a lot of uncertainty regarding the spot discussion because we don't know the, the verdict of Grayscale. I mean, I know a lot of people are very optimistic. I, 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 I see the reasoning. I just think there's a ton of nuance and I just don't know how the case is going to play out. And I'm not a, a lawyer, so I'm not comfortable really like betting 100% that Grayscale is going to win that case. What I think I am comfortable betting on amongst all of it is that I think the ETH Futures ETF will be approved. That's my personal like highest conviction bet that I'm willing to make. And so the easiest way to play that, in my opinion, is through the Ethereum Grayscale Trust ETH, which trades at like some approximately a 40% discount to its NAV. And I, th- I do think that will tighten considerably if that um, futures approval comes through. And then, you know, you do also have um, exposure to other factors like the Grayscale case and potential Bitcoin spot um, approval as well. But um, for me personally, that's that's the, the thing I'm most comfortable playing. And, you know, what I would say is we have not fully sized our our position because we do think there's some chance that grayscale loses and they widen further um and in that scenario we want to be able to buy more but ultimately i don't think it really matters too much whether grayscale loses because regardless i still expect um spot etf approval um for bitcoin and then eventually for eth as well so that that's how we're approaching it just piggybacking on what hal said we're at about like 90 percent probability that these ETH futures etfs are going to launch so um, we also believe it's it's pretty much a done deal. If that wasn't clear in <laughs> in the stuff I said when I was talking about it. So if the ETH futures, last question here, but if the ETH futures get approved, the the spread tightens and Grayscale loses, I don't understand Grayscale's next step. To be honest, like they have to go through the process all over again to seek conversion. Like, yeah, I'm I, I guess I'm trying to bifurcate like ETH futures approval, spot Bitcoin approval from another issuer. And then Grayscale's position if they if they lose, like what is their remedy to eventually convert, or is there not one? Now, I mean, I guess it it depends too. I mean, look, Grayscale could lose, and the SEC could be at a point where they say, "Listen, you get an SSA with Coinbase, that's sufficient in our mind." And then James will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Grayscale can just come back, change their application to convert, and have an SSA with Coinbase like all the other issuers, and then you know they pass through just as well as the other ones. So I, I think even if they lose, you know, depending on where the SEC is ultimately at in their mind on whether it's appropriate timing, they still could easily be a, a spot ETF for Bitcoin and then, you know, potentially ETH as well in the future. Yeah, so it, it, even if Grayscale loses, right, and they ultimately approve these other applications, whether it be BlackRock or ARTH-based cases, they're going to approve multiple at once, maybe all of them at once, because they don't want to be seen as a kingmaker the way they were with Bitto. They got a lot of flack for that. Um, so once they approve these things, right, once a 19 before is accepted by the SEC, this is a good enough reason for us to approve this. The rule chain's accepted, and that rule chain being you can list Bitcoin, future, Bitcoin, spot Bitcoin ETFs. All this, all you have to do is copy the language, right? So once that happens, Grayscale theoretically should be able to do it. Now, whether they're able to do it on the same day as these other issuers, assuming they lose the court case, or they have to do it later on, once one is approved, Grayscale will follow suit. So it's not like GBTC will never be able to convert. It's just that what will they be first or will they be on the same day as all these other issuers launch? Yeah, that's a fair point. I read like all over Twitter, there was like this 
uproar that Grayscale was against like other ETF approvals. And I read, obviously I'm not a lawyer, but I read the post and I think they were just arguing that they would love to get approved if another ETF is approved at the same time. Yeah, I had to. I pushed back on that. There was a lot of like negative stuff because some of the stuff looks like they're arguing that their reasoning isn't strong enough. But really, all they're saying is we don't even. Uh, th- what they basically said in the letter was like an SSA is great, look, but like based on anything else the SSC has done, we don't think it was necessary to get approval. So Bitwise is filed with NICE, New York Stock Exchange, and so that's what Grayscale would like to uplist their GBTC to. Um, and ironically, Bitwise is the only application that doesn't have any language about a Coinbase SSA in there. So there's some uh, there's some game theory going on on why they don't have that in there yet. I suspect it's because um, Grayscale doesn't want NICE to do that yet. Maybe it'll impact the court decision. I really don't know what's going on in the back end there. Um, but in my view, like it probably can't hurt. But who knows? Maybe they, they, the argument is it can hurt and the SEC hates Coinbase and is suing them in, in federal court over uh, being an unlicensed securities broker. Um, but there's there's a lot of stuff going on in the back end that we are just not privy to to know exactly what the the legal thinking and legal reasoning is. Agree, guys. This was an awesome conversation. Do we uh, did we miss anything that we that we talked about in our group chat during our prep? I, th- I think we have everything covered outside the memes. Um, I mean, I'll throw something else out there. Um, the ETH futures race was shot off by like I mentioned volatility shares, so they're launching a pure ETH futures ETF. Um, but Valkyrie came around and basically. Try kind of undercut them. So the process for launching an ETF like that from the start is you get to go effective or launch typically 75-ish days right after you file. But there's another process you can go through, which is a 497 to change like the investment management practices or the investment strategies. And Valkyrie did that. So it took them over a week to get through that 497 process and file it. But the, the, the benefit there is it's only a 60-day time period. So essentially, they jumped in front of volatility share. So um, I'm hearing rumors that the SEC is going to basically launch all these ETH futures ETFs potentially at the same time. Um, then this Valkyrie product will probably be first, but it will be 50% Bitcoin futures, 50% ETH futures. So it's already an existing Bitcoin futures ETF, but Bitto is the, has 98% of the assets and 98% of the trading volume. So base case for timeline on those ETH futures ETFs is I think Valkyrie will list um, or change their their fund to hold ETH futures on like October 4th-ish. Um, Bitwise will do the same that week. And then the following week, we should see volatility shares launch October 12th. Um, and I don't know if all the other Ethereum futures filings will also launch October 12th or shortly after, but um, that's the timeline for the ETH futures ETFs, which we didn't really get into. So so you're hearing rumors that the SEC will allow that conversion to happen first? Yes. I, th- I, I Well, they, basically the SEC, it's a, it's a rule. It's a specified process. Like it, the, the only way they could stop it is if the SEC says ETH futures are not allowed, right? So right, I, okay. I, or they okay. can so find some other- is the date. Yeah, they have to find some other way to like push them back. Theoretically, they could do that, whether they say like, oh, you didn't format this properly, refile and then start 60 day clock over again, which they have done in the past. So um, assuming that the filing was buttoned up and there was no exact issues. I mean, Scott can probably tell you how picky the SEC can be with some of these filings being (laughs) what he used to work for. But yeah, October 4th, October 3rd roughly looks like the date that um, this Valkyrie product will um, have. And then- that, that makes a lot of sense and that's relevant. The only other topic that I think might be relevant is, you know, whether or not we think that Grayscale will convert if given the option. I know that there's a lot of people skeptical of that because of the way that the fee dynamics work. Um, that's a conversation that maybe is worth having. I mean, I can kick it off and just say, and just give some context, you know, Bar- um, DCG owns uh, Grayscale and, and, and they're 
headed up by a guy named Barry Silbert, who's a large player in the in the space. He has a is a, it's a, it's a large financial web um, of sort of obligations with DCG, and there's a lot of sort of mess there to untangle. But the the the, the gist of it is that he owes a lot of obligations to other parties and, and needs money, and so. Um, the the largest source of, inf- of capital flowing into DCG right now is Grayscale, and they get a lot of money through the fees of these um, trust products. And so people are very skeptical as to why he will convert the trusts to ETFs, which would then re- potentially reduce the people because the management fee would have to come down and some of the AUM could leave. Um, and I think that's a rational concern. I think the other flip side of it is that you know they've been publicly pursuing this um, conversion for a very long time. So it'd be hard for them to sort of not do it once they're given the ability to do it. But personally, my sort of, well, there's, there's two sides to this one. I think that there's just, first of all, there's a, there's a lot of leadership within Grayscale that's actually separate from Barry. Um, and, you know, I've spoken to people that, that sort of know a lot of those, those folks and, and say that they are, you know, very sort of devoted and committed um, to this pursuit and, you know, are, are not going to take kindly to just sort of just, um, you know, really just dragging this out and not converting. But then also from a more financial perspective, I think what actually makes the most sense is for DCG to eventually sell Grayscale. So I think, you know, once it becomes clear that Grayscale will be able to convert um, or wins the lawsuit, you know, that asset's worth more to another player than it is to DCG because, one of the largest use for DCG is just that they don't have the reputation of a BlackRock or a Fidelity. Um, and, you know, once the conversion is allowed, a lot of that money probably flows to those larger products. But if you were to sell Grayscale to one of those larger players and they were then able to just immediately assume dominant share in this market and keep all of that AUM, that asset's worth a lot more to them. And that also solves a lot of Barry's problems because it gives him money immediately and gives him liquidity immediately which is something that would be very useful to him. So my hunch is that um, an acquisition likely happens, you know, once either an ETF is approved or Grayscale wins the case. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I agree with Al basically on all those points. I, I'm very skeptical of the idea that Grayscale would appeal the ruling, you know, pay millions of dollars in legal fees in this whole process and at the end of the day not want to convert it. Just I can't square those those two ideas in my head so i i'm, I'm without here yeah i mean um my pet theory on house thing is that i i think fidelity might buy them but that's like i have no insight or reason to believe that other than like it kind of makes sense um that said um it, it's there's some very smart people that disagree with everything with stuff that Hal and Scott said and that Grayscale is going to do everything they can not to convert and keep clipping that 2% fee. But I am not one of them. I'm staunchly in the camp that as soon as they are able to, they are going to convert. They have a lot of ETF veterans on that team now um, running the show or partially running the show at least. Um, so in the ETF world, you kind of have to cannibalize yourself to survive. Like if they don't convert and they just keep trying to clip, clip off the 2% fee, you're a melting ice cube. Grayscale has an awful name. Like there, there are so many downsides. Yes, you run the risk of like taking in way lower revenue and all these different things, but like you're never going to grow if you just don't convert these things once you get the ability to do it. And they, this has been their step from the get-go. They've, they've started these things in 2013, 2015-ish, 
And they've always said their plan was to convert to an ETF. These, this thing is structured as a grantor trust, which is the same structure as GLD. They've done everything that they should be doing if they were going to convert to the ETF. If I want, if I could be critical of them, it would be that they shouldn't be charging the two percent fee anymore. There's no reason. There, there's no way that the two percent fee makes sense in in the current climate. Um, but everything else they've yeah. been doing shows that they are pushing hard to get this thing into an ETF wrapper. And I think one interesting point that I, I hadn't really realized is that I had been under the assumption, this would be a good a good um, sort of question for you, James. I had been under the assumption that once they convert to spot, that the fees of this this sort of product is going to be in like the 20 to 25 BIP range. But talking to other people, it sounds like maybe my assumptions were too low um, and that they may actually be able to charge higher management fees such that the hit that, that even DCG would take by conversion wouldn't be quite as large as I had initially thought. And what do you think DCG would be able to charge and, and remain competitive um, if they did convert to an ETF? So part of this is it all depends what everyone else is going to charge. We know that Roundhill has come out and said they're going to charge 19 bips for their Ethereum futures ETF. The Osprey Bitcoin Trust charges, I think, 40, 40 bips. I, I Don't quote me on that for sure, but I think it's around there. So I think that the, these things will come in around that, 40 bips, 50 bips maybe. That's that's the futures market though. Correct. It? So you expect the spot to be the same? Uh, so I'm just saying that's the low end, the absolute low end. But I, I, don't, think, I don't think Roundhill is profitable at that point without having like hundreds of millions of dollars in it it's gonna it's basically um kill or be killed right so either you offer a lower fee or you offer some differentiated product that you can charge a higher fee for so they're whatever the other issuers file for even if it's not profitable for them grayscale is likely going to have to get at least close to that in order to be competitive so I, I we're thinking like 50 bips might be where it starts and it could it's probably going to go lower from there and then these different issuers will like differentiate themselves. Some will lend out the underlying Bitcoin to issue more yield or offers not give you the yield and give you a zero fee exposure, right? There's ways to do that. Um, there's different ways um, to do derivatives overlays. Um, <laughs> there's whole many things you could do. Um, the smaller amounts for creation redemption. So theoretically, if you only have a few thousand dollars, you could you could do a redemption and get Bitcoin directly. So some some issuers might do something like that. There's all these different things that people can do to differentiate. But one, it, no matter what, if you're going to be charging double the price of the cheapest product, as long as it's extremely similar, like you're not going to be competitive. So Grayscale is going to have to meet these other issuers where they are. And when you have BlackRock in this space, they, I, <laughs> I wouldn't put anything past them, right? Like they could go really low on this thing if they think they could get billions of dollars in, right? Because it's, there, it's relatively, um, the, 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 the fixed costs aren't, are pretty high up front, but the, it's more about the flexible costs and the, the marginal costs that happens here. So once you get to a certain level of assets, it's just printing money and the margins are going up and you can afford to offer lower, lower fees. So BlackRock or somebody comes in with really low fees, Grayscale is going to have to cut them. But I, our, our guess right now is around 50 bips at least is where these first okay. ones will be. So that, so that asset will really be worth a lot more to somebody else. Correct. I think so. That's why yeah. I don't, I've heard through the grape through the grapevine and all the rumors i'm sure you guys have heard that gary that, that barry does not want to sell dcg views it as like a crown jewel but he's selling off a chunk of coin desk and like you said if if gbdc is able to convert then all of a sudden grayscale might have uh, a little more value to um another etf issuer james you mentioned the like offering a differentiated product outside of just competing on fees we uh we are investing through iq and they're offering like staked staking yep. in their product do you think that that will be like, I don't know, it just seems like for the Wall Street people around the world, managing large capital, being able to earn a yield on an ETF, I just feel like the inflows may be a lot larger how than you mentioned. Like that narrative just seems pretty substantial to me that you could get exposure to ETH, that the staking yield would cover the fee 
and you'd still net out, it just seems like a pretty well, compelling. Yeah, narrative. to be clear, that 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 would that would be for the spot product, and I do agree that the spot product would would have significantly more upside than I mentioned. Before. Yeah, there's there's also the secondary, like you could just do sec lending, which is like the same way you lend out, <laughs> the same way you lend out underlying equities and ETFs, and sometimes you end up with ETFs that have positive tracking, so they actually outperform the underlying index because they are earning enough money on the lending of the securities. Um, now the problem here is obviously people in the crypto space do not like when things are lent out on the back of what happened with uh, BlockFi and Celsius and I can name five other things here. Um, but um, so it, it'll be like, who's willing to do that? There are some ETFs in Europe that have literally 0% fees because they're lending out the underlying crypto assets to offset the fees. So you get free exposure. But again, the, that is left lent out. So maybe the the Wall Street TradFi type people will be more inclined to to look that way. And then the other thing that I didn't really mention is like you have the Bitwise and the Valkyries of the world. Then you have Invesco who's partnered with Galaxy and you have ARK who's partnered with 21 shares. Like all of a sudden, if you're a crypto native and you're looking in this in your IRA, you might be looking to somebody that's like really into understanding DeFi and the crypto world and staking some of the stuff you were just talking about, Tommy, um, and figuring out like, I want to use one of these funds. So it's not necessarily just going to be fees. But again, as long as you're relatively close on fees, you can do pretty well. Um, but there's other ways to differentiate yourselves. And these other issuers, they're, they're not going to close up shop because they don't get significant assets. A lot of these companies are, they're trying to be a one-stop shop for these advisors to, to do this. Think of Bitwise and Valkyrie, right? So they're going to, even if it's unprofitable for a time being, for a very long time, they might just keep these in their lineup because they can't go to these issuers and be like, oh yeah, we have this futures product and this futures product and these SMAs, but we don't have a spot Bitcoin ETF because we couldn't get market share. Like that's not going to happen. So you have to like play all these different areas. Like Galaxy is going to do what they can to keep Invesco's open. Who, who knows what else will happen? Hal, what do you think the world looks like with on the finance side with spot ETFs? Occurring? This is like one of the final bosses to adoption, um, honestly, to price increase, to the narrative, to educating people around the world about crypto, getting it in their brokerage accounts. Like, what do you think comes comes next? Because it seems like at that point we sort of you know call it win. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this is probably a better question for James. Like, I don't have a tremendous sense of how large a deal this is for advisors, but I know that 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 James and 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 the and some of the other folks at Bloomberg have thought it was quite a big deal. So I'd be curious actually to get their take. Yeah. So for futures, I, we talk about the roll calls, but that the they're not great for for long term holding. Not good for buy and hold investors, which most of the advisors are. They are really good trading vehicles. If you're trying to get exposure and beta to an underlying market for uh, days or even sometimes weeks, months, um, the futures ETFs are great. So they're great for traders. They trade penny wide. So or, or so you're basically not going to be charged anything to trade these things for the most part. Um, and the expense ratios, yes, they're high, but if you're trading them, it doesn't matter, right? So that's one way to look at ETFs. Spot is the whole, it's the holy grail. Because if you're an advisor, right, there are platforms out there like OnRamp, which was just acquired by somebody. There's there's other platforms out there where they were trying to set up and tie into these advisors' backends. And you basically would be able to hold Spot ETH or Spot Bitcoin or Spot whatever for your clients. But for the most part, advisors don't want to deal with that, right? So the, what they like is they have their own platform, they have this umbrella, and they charge an X percent of fee. Usually it's like 1% for these assets under this umbrella. A lot of them we know have clients who are like buying crypto on their own on Coinbase or Gemini or, or what have you. Um, and they would love to bring that money underneath their umbrella. 
or maybe even just put like 1% of X number of clients' assets into these things. And the easiest way to do that would be a spot Bitcoin ETF, particularly one that is low fee, because there's a fiduciary duty there. They can defend it. They can keep it under their umbrella and charge the 1% fee on the assets in there. So for that reason, it's that's why the spot ones become uh, a whole different calculus in um, the type of money that could flow in. I hope that was clear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that. The I mean, the tax advantage, I mean, if you have a spot... Bitcoin, spot ETH, and then you, I mean, in theory, you just combine them too. I mean, you get tax advantages for something like that. It, the credibility to the space, I think, is, you know, something that is desperately needed, at least at this point in time, especially with um, Gary's crusade. Um, yeah, I mean, look, yeah, I think ever since the Winklevoss twins kind of started the the meme in 2013 or so, it's just been kind of like, when is this going to happen? This is kind of like the arrival point on the scene when you're really a, a kind of an established asset class. Um, and so I think, you know, maybe it, maybe the flows aren't as big as some people might appreciate, but in terms of like how people view the space and everything else might be more important than anything else. Yeah, this goes back to something that Hal said at the very beginning. Um, it's the approval is it's it, I think it'll even be bigger about like what the signal the signal that that approval sends, right? So one for e futures ETFs, I th the signals I don't think is fully through that the SEC is kind of moving past them a little bit. Um, Ethereum and also spot Bitcoin, it's regulatory clarity. There's a lot more information that gets out there. Um, it's in an ETF wrapper. There's just like more acceptance that's going to happen. Less so than like, oh my God, there's going to be this wall of money coming into these products. Like that's not going to be the case. Yes, they'll be big, um, but it's not going to be this this massive wall of money coming here. I think it's more about the the signal that it sends if these are approved. The signal's big though. I mean, having society shift to like, you know, your grandpa having crypto in their brokerage account and not smirking at you at Thanksgiving when you accept a job at some <laughs> crypto company. I mean, that has, you know, ramifications where everybody starts to get involved. They start to build and it's widely accepted. That's a, that's definitely an interesting future. And it's, it is wild that that could come from obviously increased growth in the space and adoption, but, you know, singularly from an ETF potentially is pretty interesting. That, that grandpa reference sounded uh, oddly personal to you. Yes, I... <laughs> it was at one point. <laughs> yeah, one time or another. Uh, well, guys, I've I've stolen eighty five minutes of your time, and and I really appreciate it. You guys are are the foremost experts, and you spend all day on this stuff. So I think it's really interesting to have you guys on here to chat ETFs, chat impact, the nuance of the SEC case with Grayscale, kind of the impact to House Point on society and acceptance. And I think it was really interesting. So I appreciate everyone's time. Thanks for having us. And, and follow, James, hey, thanks for having follow me James on Twitter because every Tuesday and Fridays, the DC circuit drops new opinions. And so if it doesn't come out, you can, you can blame him because he jinxes it every time. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry he, for everyone on the line and anyone listening to this. I don't mean to jinx it. But everyone, I get, I get these responses like, are we going to get something tomorrow? And I, I can't just not respond. Well, James, I saw Eric like pre-gaming the your tweets. Now I think it was at a parking lot or something. Your Eric. Yeah, that was me. No, that was me. I was tailgating. I was tailgating this morning in the Bloomberg parking lot. Yeah. I have alerts on for both of you, so I get you. I get you confused sometimes. Well, thanks so much, guys. Have a great. Have a great night. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on.